Mark Thomas. Hello. You have done so many things. Uh, you've done loads of really interesting things and loads of really important things, and I've got so much that I want to ask you about, and I'm having to pick and choose. Let's start with what you're currently doing at the moment. You've got this new tour, mm. a new book. There's a new tour and a book, and it will soon be a film. As well, oh, really? For the cinemas, hopefully. That's um, exciting. And what I did was I walked around the length of the separation barrier in the West Bank, uh, which, when it's finished, is going to be 750 kilometres long. And so I rambled you on both sides, on the Israeli and the Palestinian side. And it was brilliant, actually. It was absolutely brilliant. I remember getting home, because it took, like, eight weeks, and everything happened in this uh, walk. We were arrested, we were detained, we got stoned. I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from YesYesMarsha.com, and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. You got stoned. Yeah, that was quite... Um, some Palestinians. And we were walking with some ex-PLO guys who are part of this group who are uh, called Combatants for Peace. So they're ex-Israeli fighters, ex-Palestinian fighters who give up the gun and are f- using non-violent ways to end the occupation and to bring the wall down and all of that kind of stuff. And so I was walking with them and we, we, some people just... We were in a gully because the wall was quite high up on a ridge. And we just got stoned. But these Palestinian kids thought that we were settlers or that we were police or that we were something it was very funny because we were walking with ex-Israeli soldiers and ex-PLO people everyone was very calm the guy we were with was just like don't run look where the stones are coming through and this other guy's going take your time and all of this and the Palestinian guy was, who with, was standing in the middle of the gully screaming at these kids up the hill going what are you doing these are our guests how dare you treat them so rudely which was just hysterical and actually we got out of there uh, but all sorts of things happened in doing it, and we met all sorts of people. We met, we went on border patrol with the uh, army, and it was just amazing because there wasn't enough room in there. Because I had a cameraman with me. One of those moments where you just go, if he hasn't got the camera on, I'm going to kill him. Because we got onto the, they opened up the back of the Land Rover and said, you'll be able to squeeze in. And there was nowhere for me to get. I had to move like these boxes of tear gas grenades and, and batons out of the way to make room for myself to sit in this thing. Uh, so, so we had this amazing sort of adventure, but there was also, as well as all those things, there was also amazing hospitality and amazing, uh, you know, the countryside is so beautiful and just things will just make you gasp every single day. And was it problematic if you were kind of speaking to people on both sides? You know, there, there wasn't... One side going, oh, but we saw you fraternising with that lot. and There's a big wall in the way. Right. <laughs> you know, there's a big so wall. they never knew. <laughs> no, I mean, we were very honest about what we were doing. And actually, it was very interesting because we would go over... You have to get across checkpoints, and sometimes it, co- it takes sort of 40 minutes, and sometimes it takes an hour and 40 to get through these checkpoints, which are really absolute nightmares. But what's interesting is actually everything is different about the two sides. So when you go into the settlers, you expect to find these settlements to be sort of slightly wild west and frontier and they're really suburban are they they're, re- they're really sort of they have all the lockups and garages open as you walk past you can see all the bikes and the trikes and the sort of lawnmowers hung up and the you know the laundry baskets and the fridge freezers and the dad's diy and all the gardens you walk around these bits and it's beautiful these gardens are just incredible there's also bourgainvillea and comquats and cordelines and all this and so you you literally go from one extreme to the next 
it was a brilliant walk. It was the best thing I've ever done. And one of the great things is every day you didn't know what was going to happen. Because, like, we were walking across the field and you bump into someone and you just get talking with them and you didn't know what they would tell you. But we used to build in an hour every day for Palestinian hospitality, right, that you would get delayed with teas and coffee. You just couldn't get away. You couldn't get away. People would chase you up the street. I promise you, we used to call it the Palestinian roadblock because the Israelis had the checkpoints and the Palestinians had coffee. And so we used to call Palestinian coffee the Palestinian roadblock. And at one point, I remember going up and said, we're right in the middle, because it's so beautiful. People forget this. It's really, really beautiful. These incredible hills, and you just walk up. They've got orchids, wild orchids, on the top of the hills. Do you know what I mean? So you've got, and it smells of thyme and za'atar and all this beautiful herbs when you walk up there. We're walking up these hills, and it's uh, near Hebron. Early morning start, we sat down, and there's no one else around, just some houses. But there weren't many of them, just sort of half a dozen. A couple of kids come out, and they say, hello, who are you? And we say hello back. Did you learn the... Like, no, no, we had translators. Right. Every, we had translators who walked with us every day. So we walked with all sorts of people, like ex-teachers, or we walked with or current teachers, and we walked with sort of ex-army people, or you know, it was, it was all it was really interesting. So the kids come out and say hello, and then the mum comes out and says, "Have you had breakfast yet?" And we said, "No." And we're sitting in the middle of nowhere, and she emerges ten minutes later with this massive pot of black tea, homemade bread that's just come out of the oven. Right, uh, sheep's milk yogurt, sheep's milk cheese, homegrown tomatoes and cucumbers and olives and all this stuff. And you just sit there just overwhelmed by the hospitality of it. And it's brilliant because I'm never going to, you know, very few people get sort of access to that little bit. And it's just amazing. So why did you decide to do it? What did you hope to achieve? Because I didn't know enough about it. I thought it'd be exciting to go and do because I'm now 47. And for some reason, I've got it into my mind that maybe... Maybe I've done the most kind of outrageous things or maybe I've done the most stupid things that I'm ever going to do. Uh, and I have done some really... There was one thing when we flew a hot air balloon over a US listening base in, in Yorkshire once. I nearly crashed this hot air balloon. We, we nearly bumped into the water tower. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's very funny because it's an American base in Britain. You can see sort of, like, American cars and things. It's and is it, is it officially American airspace, or is it, like, were you... No, no, that's because it's a secret, because it was deemed to be a secret base at the right. time. They had no mention of it on, on any flight maps. So there's absolutely no flight controls over it. And because you're in a hot air balloon, you have no control over direction or speed. Every landing you make is qualified as a crash landing. So, in fact, we very nearly landed in the base, which would have been quite outrageous. But... I, I kind of guess part of the reason was a personal reason of going to walk around the West Bank was just kind of, I just want to do one more big sort of wonderful adventure. And then the other reason is actually I don't know enough about it. And there's something wonderfully subversive about rambling. It's very English, is rambling. It's, but ramblers have got, I talk about this in the show, they have got a real kink in them. What do you mean? They're people who just go, no, I have a right to be here. And I like that. Do you know what I mean? When you speak to ramblers, they know their rights. And they'll be able to take you to the definitive maps on the council offices and go, here, <laughs> you know, I have a permissive footpath or whatever. Do you know what I mean? But I did like you manage that. to kind of bring that mindset to... On occasion. The interesting thing I think about it is the fact that everything is dictated by identity. So if you're uh, an Israeli, you have a blue ID card. If you're Palestinian, you have a green ID card. If you're an Israeli driver, you have a yellow number plate. And if you're from the West Bank, you have a white and green number plate. So everything is colour-coded. And identity is very, very quickly, you know, it's one thing or the other, very, very quickly. These decisions are made very quickly. If you're with Israelis and you walk into the West Bank, they start talking very quickly. They'll just chuck in a few Arab words just to make sure that everyone knows 
that the Israelis have got a few Arab words in their corner, and they're all, you know. And so these decisions that all of us make have severe ramifications there, or can do have, have severe ramifications. So being British is slightly odd, because you wander through as a rambler, and people say, what are you doing here? And you say, I'm British. And they say, oh, you're an international, you're here for solidarity with the Palestinians. And you go, actually, I'm a rambler. And there's, there's something odd about that. You don't quite fit into the category of identity there. Right, and do you think that made your passage easier? I I, yeah, sometimes. It was very funny because the Palestinians, as soon as... Whenever you walked into a village, people would go, you're British, and you go, yes, I am British. And they go, are you aware that in 1917 your Lord Balfour gave away a country to that? And they'd start this huge thing. And every day, seriously, every day, and it got to the point, it was about four times a day, and it got to the point where actually, uh, and, uh, I, I say this quietly, I declared myself tactically Scottish. So what would happen was they'd go, you're British, and I would go, actually, I'm, I'm Scottish, and what you're talking about is English imperialism. And there's no one quite like the Scots who's been at the, at the wrong end of English imperialism. So when you finish telling me about Lord Balfour, let me talk you through the Highland Clearances. Do you know what I mean? So there was a sort of... This whole thing of identity was there all the time. But uh, you could be slightly fluid about it if you're a visitor, if you're a rambler, which you can't, obviously, if you're a Palestinian running around with your card. We got into some very weird and wild situations, just surreal situations. There's one part of the walk where the wall goes on the West Bank and on the map the municipal boundary of Jerusalem goes through part of this Palestinian area so I met this guy who said oh let me show you around and he said this if you walk here in the alleyway here officially this bit is in Israel this is Jerusalem and this bit is the West Bank and he said so this part of the alley is Israel and this part is I said okay and he said the stairwell the line goes through the stairwell of this house so half the stairwell is officially in Israel and half the stairwell is officially in the West Bank I said right I said, does it go through the house? He said, yes. And he lived there, this guy. And I said, where, where is it? He said, it goes through my living room and my dining room and part of my balcony. So I said, oh, you lucky thing. Part of your living room and your dining room and your balcony are in Israel. So you've, you, you've actually got two countries in one house. And he said, yes. He said, um, but there's like 150 people living in this block. I said, so, that, so, so, so what happened? He said, um, at two o'clock in the morning, all the soldiers and police arrived, and they arrested everyone for illegally entering Israel. What? For walking into their living room. Oh my and God. I was like, God, right. I go, you got arrested for walking into your living room. And he's very, very, he's got this wonderful sense of humour, so he just went, to be fair, we also went in the dining room. <laughs> you know, so he, he, he was very, very funny. But actually, it was, you know, pretty hard, because everyone got arrested, and there was court orders. So you end up in these very surreal situations. And um, you got detained a bunch of times as well. Yes. You? Well, you see, the thing is, is because you sort of... Rather stupidly, I sort of approached it because all the soldiers are very young, you know, and when they stop you, they start shouting and, and then they get your passports and then you sort of like have a little natter and then they go off and sometimes they keep you and sometimes they detain you and sometimes they don't. But you'd often find yourself chatting to the soldiers and I found myself turning into a dad <laughs> because I am a dad, you know, but I was talking to one soldier and I said, oh, what are you going to do when you leave then? <laughs> and he said, well, I'm going to go out and going to go to Goa. I said, yeah, but that's, everyone does that. What are you going to do when you get back? You thought about university? What about college? What about an arts degree? You should think about an arts degree just because you're in the army. Don't mean you can... Yeah. And suddenly I found myself turning into the worst kind of uncle, you know, because they're so young. And sometimes when you get stopped by the soldiers, you do feel like going, does your dad know you got the car? They, you know, there are moments like that. But obviously there are dangerous moments as well. One time we got detained because if you build a wall... You then have to have soldiers to protect your wall. So they patrol it 24 hours a day, and you have watchtowers all over the place. The entire population of the West Bank is kept 
behind this wall. So if you build that wall, you have to have soldiers to look after it, and then you have an infrastructure to look after the soldiers. But then you actually have to have a buffer zone in front of the wall to stop anyone getting near the wall, to damage the wall, to endanger the soldiers, da 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 So you'd often be told you're walking too close to the wall on the Palestinian side. You have to go back 100 metres, or you have to go back however long. And I remember getting stopped. These guys came around this big armoured sort of hummer. We're walking through green, you know, these big, you know those plastic tunnels that they grow stuff in? They're called greenhouses, but there's, you know, yeah. not like we would accept as a glass greenhouse, proper greenhouse. You'd wander around there, and the wall in this village goes through the school playing field and cuts the football pitch in half. So there's a goal on the Palestinian side and a goal on the Israeli side. And this huge, great military road going through the centre spot, it really does cut and turn and move but all so across what, the But so what happens with something like that? I mean, like you said, people getting arrested in their houses, but that's... Well, it's a military occupation, so, I mean, that's... You know, there is a different law from Israeli law. So you have Israeli law, which has courts. And, you know, if you go to court in Israel, you'll have uh, witnesses and you'll have prosecution and defence and you'll have examination of witness uh, of, of evidence and all of that. And a jury. And in the West Bank, you have military law. So you have a military judge. There is no jury. There is no presentation of evidence. There is very little presentation, barely presentation of the charges. Often the defendant will meet their lawyer for the first time actually in the court. And so it's two completely different systems and ways of operating. So do they just have to not play football and not go into the dining room? Well, sometimes yes. I mean, that's how it works. Sometimes yes. But we're walking around these greenhouses and this big hummer pulls up and starts shouting at us. And I sort of go, look, I'll go and deal with it. I'll go and... Because there's a whole lot of Palestinians. No, I'll go and sort it out. You know, in that horrible sort of patronising way. So don't worry, I'm British. And so I sort of stumble across this field. As I get near this... Israeli soldier shouts out, what religion are you? And it was very funny because I should, I've been there long enough to, I should sort of go, oh, look, I'm an atheist, mate, or, or don't be silly, or it doesn't matter. Or um, my mate actually said, you should have said that you're a Presbyterian Buddhist and next next time you're coming back as something even more uncomfortable. So, that's, you know, anything would have done, but for my reaction, which is, that's the most stupid question I've heard outside of Northern Ireland. Anyway, we were, three hours later, we were released. And it was very funny because it was the day after Human Rights Day. <laughs> and I said, you know, it's the day after Human Rights Day. And they said, did you know it's Hanukkah? And so we started doing this little cultural exchange while we were being detained. Sometimes they'll t- stop you at checkpoints. Sometimes they'll just stop you by the wall and just leave you sitting there and just sort of surrounded by the army. And you just sort of sit on the side of the road. But it's quite nice because we'd always have lunch and we'd always have sort of like snacks and, and drinks with us. And <laughs> on one occasion we got stopped and we actually sort of sat down sort of with the people we were walking with and started having some tea. And actually, if you've got a an mp3 player they're very handy and we actually got into this habit of my camera and i just you know when you get into those little silly sort of rituals we would get into this habit of whenever we got stopped by the israeli army we would sit down and the first thing we'd do is we'd play this hawaiian music we've got some hawaiian swing music which i had on, <laughs> on a phone and so what, you'd play it on a little speaker yeah and how did it, they react they just looked a little bit amused <laughs> what was incredible was you'd meet all sorts of people doing the most incredible stuff doing the most amazing work and what was incredible was seeing the number of Palestinians who were sort of developing non-violent resistance really which was really interesting and that was quite amazing did it change your opinion on the situation at all yeah what changed I think when I went there I mean I'd always had sympathy with sort of the Palestinian cause but the suicide bombing on the second intifada just left me just like boom I'm not interested and then Gaza kind of changed all of that and what changed was actually the number of Israelis who are involved in working against the occupation 
and a number of Israelis who, who, you know, meeting all sorts of people who are doing the most amazing. There's one group of people who are called Breaking the Silence, and what they are are ex-soldiers, and they go around getting testimony from serving soldiers, and then they publish it, just to say to the Israeli people, look, this is what you're making your children do, right? This is a conscript army, and this is what they do in your name. And some of it is very, very brutal. You know, it's all sort of like testimony that soldiers are given, and they know it's going to be published. And so they talk about, you know, what it's like and, and what they've done, and, and it's really revealing testimony. And they come under a lot of political pressure and attack. There's a lovely guy we met who is, uh, who is just great. He runs this thing called ICAD, which is uh, an Israeli group that helped rebuild Palestinian homes when they get demolished by the army. And he's just such a sweet, sweet bloke. And he had this, he's kind of like a Father Christmas figure, but a rattled Father Christmas, you know, like with bald head, but this great big, like, Father Christmas beard. And he was great. I mean, he would come out walking with us. I said, where are you from originally? Because a lot of Israelis, you know, are migrants, are the people who've come from all around the world. Uh, this is a state that's been built upon immigration. And he said, uh, he said, Minnesota. I said, Minnesota? He said, yeah, we were known as the Frozen Chosen, <laughs> which I just thought was the greatest. The line of identifying yourself, the Frozen Chosen, was a great line. So uh, meeting the number of Israelis who were involved in this kind of work was, was re- a real eye-opener. I um, interviewed not that long ago the musician Jeffrey Lewis, and he'd gone out to go and play some gigs, and he was saying that the thing he was really struck by was kind of how much everyone on each side thought that the other side wasn't understanding. You know, how much he found the Palestinians weren't aware of people like the people that you're talking about. And the same with the Israelis. Everyone kind of felt that the opposite side was more extreme than actually he experienced them to be. That's, I mean, that's true, certainly. I think the, that actually people have... This is the worst thing with the wall. It means that actually you just have stereotype visions. You have these visions of each other which are not true and accurate. You often do. And it is really horrid that actually kids are growing up with this idea that Arabs are one thing and there's another group of kids growing up thinking that Jews are one thing. I mean, the wall is a very destructive thing. But without doubt, for me, I mean, what struck me... One was the amount of Israelis committed to doing things to change things, which was really interesting. And all sorts of people doing very brave sort of work. But also I never quite expected it to be that bad. I never expected the conditions on the West Bank to be as bad as they were. It was very shocking. I mean, literally, you know, as I said, you have one law for one and one law for another. You know, you'd, you come across the most bizarre things where there's a road that runs through these Palestinian villages that only Israelis are, uh, are allowed to use. So they block the road up, the for Palestinian roads that lead to it, which means you have now a road running through this part of the countryside which, you know, the people can't use. And people at the... Authorities, the Israeli authorities, designed a tunnel to help Israeli school children get from one side of the road to the other because their school's on the other side of the road. And this is a big sort of highway-type road. And so they said, OK, you're not allowed on the road, but we'll build you a tunnel under the road. And I walked under this tunnel with these kids, and when it rains, it floods with sewage from the settlement. And so there is this tunnel of crap, of human crap, that these kids go through when it rains to get to school. And that was being purposefully designed. And I remember meeting the guy who built it. And I said, that's really outrageous what you've done. And he said, but I gave them a step. And it's true, there was a little step that ran along the side, a little ledge that people could walk along. And that was really shocking. The other thing, of course, was the fact that people were a lot more friendly and a lot more 
opening than and, and open than I thought. People have very very set preconceptions of Palestine, and you know, you think of when you think of the West Bank, people often think of mass use and stone throwing and all this kind of stuff. And actually, it's very beautiful. It's incredibly hospitable. It's also very adventurous. I was in Janine, which is in the north, which is a Palestinian city, and there is a theatre in the refugee camp called Freedom Theatre. And in it, they run a drama course. I mean, it's quite the most remarkable thing I've seen. I spoke to one of the kids there who said, look, he said, I make no bones about it. He said, my life plan, he said, was... And, and roughly these words, he said, I saw myself as a suicide bomber. That's what would happen. He said, you know, I saw myself as someone who would protect my community, wow. who would go and fight for my community. Um, and that's how I saw myself. And he said, and then I found this theatre. Wow. And I realised that actually art is a way of challenging, you know, and fighting back. That's amazing. And these guys are fantastic. There are three women on the course, which is, for a, a refugee camp, it's a very, very conservative place, right? And so three women on the course was an amazing thing. These women were articulate, smart, really committed people. And they were amazing. They would talk about one girl. When she came in to do the drama course, when she'd go into the camp, to the theatre, one family put out notes going, she's a slag, she's a slut, she does this art thing and hangs out with men, and you know. And they put out leaflets about this. Mm-hmm. Her family would walk her into the theatre to make sure she got there. And actually, on one occasion, they physically fought with the family who put around the leaflets about her daughter, you know, to get her to go to drama school. And I remember talking to her and the director of this drama school going, do you know, you've got a theatre that people are fighting to get into. You know, I know a lot that people are fighting to get out. I mean, you should be really proud of it. The brilliant thing about it was, this isn't just a kind of rah, 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 viva Palestina type stuff. Their first production, under the Palestinian National Authority, was Animal Farm. The Palestinian National Authority went nuts... It was fantastic because it was this critical analysis of what was going on in their place. And there's a real... Uh, right at the end, they said, well, the animals look at the man, the man looked at the animal, and they couldn't tell the difference. I've seen a video of this stuff, and what they've got is one guy's dressed as an Arab and one guy's dressed wow. as a Jew, and they said they looked from one and they couldn't tell the difference. It's incredibly critical of the politics of the region and really exciting when you see stuff like this because it just completely changes your vision of how you see things. And so hopefully some of this we're going to see on this film. Yeah, I hope you'll see some of that yeah. stuff in the film. I mean, you'll also see some very weird stuff, like when we're in a place called Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem, which was to be the Palestinian capital and was annexed in '67. And there's been a process of creating Israeli settlements in East Jerusalem. And there are places in one place called Sheikh Jarrah where it's a Palestinian area and settlers are trying to evict the uh, Palestinians using building laws and planning regulations and it is really quite chilling when you see a settler who is living in someone's front two living rooms they've got into the front two living rooms through court orders of someone else's home it's just absurdly how does it chilling. how do they like interact with them or no 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 they've sort of sealed that bit off Whoa. But every day they walk past the family, every day that, you know. We were there when the deputy mayor of Jerusalem came in, and I saw him walk down the street, and I just went, that's a politician. And we just ran at this guy, and we bumped into this Israeli journalist. I said, who's that? And he went, it's the deputy mayor of Jerusalem. And we did this on-the-hoof interview, which is like, I'm quite, that's the bit I'm quite good at. <laughs> it's kind of getting in someone's face. <laughs> 
people should go and have a look at stuff like the Cinema Janine and, and Janine Freedom Theatre on the website because these things really are quite astounding. You do do dangerous things. Do you I, think, okay... I, I think I'm... they're calculated risks. Right. And they're fun, they, you know. But obviously, you know, I don't do anything where I think, right, what should I do today? I, you know, it's something sort of insane. But do you ever kind of have your family going, please don't? Actually, my family go, please don't over my gags around the dinner table. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens. They just go, Dad, please don't say that outside this room. That's what they say. How do you decide to do... I mean, particularly, I was wondering this, in the TV show that you did for six years, mm. the Mark Thomas comedy product, which was... Do you want to just explain briefly their premise? Basically, they asked us to do a television show, and I just thought it would be interesting to do something that I hadn't seen on television, so we would do all sorts of things, stunts and pranks and weirdness. You got real results from it? Yeah, we did. We started off, you know, doing all sorts of uh, odd little bits and bobs. You know, we would... We drove a series of vehicles through McDonald's trying to get stuff from a drop takeout, you know, and stuff like that. So it'd be things that you might actually see on balls of steel now or what have you. And then we ended up doing things where we would we set up a PR company, a fake PR company, and went to an arms fair in Greece and said that we could help people with their human rights track record so that if people were in the arms industry or in a military regime and they were having problems with their human rights, and we could help them with the perception of that. We could help them handle the media. And so we did human rights training, media training with these people, and that was quite nuts because actually in the course of it, we managed to get sort of very credible admissions of the use of British-supplied equipment in East Timor by the Indonesians and, you know, the use of torture and stuff like that. And that was kind of quite odd because... On one hand, it's this silly little game where we were pretending to be PR advisors. And when we asked people, we'd say... So my mate would have this big folder with all the amnesty accusations, and I would be the advisor sitting next to them. And he would say, you've been accused of da-da-da-da-da. And the person would answer back, and I'd go, OK, you've done that. Now, why don't we try this method? Do you think you could try this? We had a whole load of toys on a table. And so if they did really well with their answers, we would give them the toys and say, OK, you've done very well. And so we had, at one point, I remember talking to this Indonesian major general going, you handled that very badly, I'm going to take away Spider-Man. <laughs> and it was, so at one point you've got this kind of slightly weird, surreal situation going on. At another point you've got this, where they do admit to the using torture and the use of UK equipment. So but also you got a law changed about inheritance yeah, tax? Yeah, yeah. There was inherit the law did change as a result of that. Yeah, that was great. What it was was, um, if you inherit works of art or you inherit land you can actually don't have to pay tax, inheritance tax, and you put it on this scheme whereby the public are allowed to see it. So there's loads and loads of works of art where we can go and see them. But we found out it was very hard to find out exactly what was on the list. There was no list of what was available, where it was, who owned it, where you could go and see it, how you could go and see it. But we found out a couple of items, and we found out that uh, Nicholas Soames, who was the Armed Forces Minister at the time, had a rather lovely three-tier mahogany buffet with partially reeded slender baluster upright supports, if I remember correctly. <laughs> uh, I'm a big fan of, of a partially reeded slender baluster upright support, especially on a three-tier mahogany buffet. So we applied to go and see it. You can apply to it. You say, can I come and see it? And they say, yes, yes. And so he said, yes, you can. And then we found out, and I remember saying, can we bring some friends? He said, no, you can't bring friends. I have to apply individually. So we just said, okay. And we got loads of people to apply to see his three-tier mahogany buffet partially reeded slender baluster upright supports. And he 
he ended up putting it on display at Christie's. Hundreds of people came, and they were dressed up as artists. So some people came, and you weren't allowed to take photographs of it. So people brought in etch-a-sketches, or, or we had a courtroom artist and things like that. Um, when we went in to see it, there was like a Toulouse-Lautrec, and there was a Rembrandt. And then someone had come as Robert Mapplethorpe with his leather chaps and this moustache and a little peach cap. And it was great. It was brilliant fun. And we spent a couple, we did a couple of programs about all these, and there was um, various people, landed gentry types, who had land and buildings and art that we were able to see. And, it and led... they changed the law as yeah. a result. But what was quite funny, as I bumped into Nicholas Soames, I'd gone round to the Portcullis house to see somebody, there was a meeting or something, and Nicholas, you know, they have cafes there, and so these politicians just sit by the cafes. They were just sitting there. I walked up to him and said, oh, I wonder if, do you remember me? And he looked up at me with this sort of scowl. I'm not sure if he did. Uh, I said, I was just wondering, is your three-tier mahogany buffet with partially really slender baluster upright support still available for viewing? Or did you actually pay the tax? He said, it's not available. <laughs> Brilliant. So how do you, you know, when you were picking subjects for that, that went on, you had 45 episodes that went on for six years, all all the different things, you know, the new show you've got or the manifesto show that you did recently. Obviously, you're very political and you do things that do get results. Do you have to ever be strict with yourself to go, how am I going to keep the funny in this? I've got to keep the funny in this. Well, the thing about it is actually you have to tell the story. A gag is a story. That's all a gag is. You know, it's just a compressed story. And any story that we all tell stories, all of us tell stories about what we do, you know, about our work life, about family stories. There's always family stories. My dad, right, my dad was a self-employed builder. He had problems with spelling. He was had dyslexia, what would be called dyslexia. And this was quite bad when you're doing invoices and offering people a discount. You can imagine the, you know, this can be quite embarrassing in your spellings. So these became, you know, like family stories about how bad my dad's spelling was or the fact that my dad my dad actually did look like Santa and he did he was Father Christmas at school fairs and so the, all the kids at school <laughs> at primary school would go can't see Father Christmas my dad's Father Christmas my mum once said to me my dad was famously grumpy and my mum said there's 5p can't see Father Christmas he was doing Lucky Dip and um I sat on his knee and he goes, what do you want for Christmas? And I said, uh, a Sky Electric said, you'll be bloody lucky, get some out of the bin, sort of. <laughs> and so it was, you know, all this kind of stuff, all things that we have are stories, they're all stories, and ultimately it's about telling stories. That sounded dreadful, didn't it? No. That just sounded awful. No, that no, no, sounded that so sense. late show. That was late review. <laughs> Kirsty would have slapped me for that. Going, what do you mean? Ultimately, it's about telling stories. You big cons. No, but it's. <laughs> I think it's true. I think that's an interesting point. And I think you know because a lot of people, whenever I'm interviewing someone, I kind of mention on Twitter and Facebook. Okay, I'm interviewing these people. Do you have any questions? And quite a few people came back and said, "Can you ask him why he's a comedian and not a politician? Surely we need people like him in politics." I think because if I was a politician, I'd steal all the money. And that'd be the thing. You don't want people like me involved. I'd be the worst type of politician. Seriously, What's your expenses? You have... I've spent a million on sweets. <laughs> really? Yes. Have you ever considered Sour it? plums. A bag of sour plums. No. I mean, I, 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 in a way, I think I am involved in politics. I think, actually, when you see people involved... Like the Jubilee Debt campaign was a very good example of this. You know, loads and loads of people went around wearing wristbands or, you know, joining hands around or, or signing petitions, things like that. This is a campaign. And actually, politicians were the last people involved in it. They were the last people at the end of it. They were the rubber stamp right at the end of it all. 
It was us lot that did it, you know. It was, it was us lot that that actually managed to do it. Dare I even say Bob Geldof actually had a role to play in it? You know, there were people like the academic Susan George, who was amazing, whose books on debt were just the most revelatory things going. And you know, all of that stuff—it's all of that work. All the people who get out and go on demos and and write letters and all that kind of stuff—they're the people that achieve things. Were you political as soon as you started doing stand-up? Because the first thing you ever did—oh man, I was d- dreadful. <laughs> Were you? Oh, yeah. Am I right in thinking the first kind of stand-up-ish thing that you did was minor strike stuff in Wakefield? Yeah, that's true. I was at a college in Yorkshire, so during the minor strikes, so it was very much, you know... And it was very odd because, you know, we were sitting there reading about Bertolt Brecht and the involvement of workers' theatre in Germany and the rise of kind of involvement of political theatre. And, of course... You know, there's this massive strike going on outside and suddenly we're going, oh, we could do this. We could go and put on a show in the soup kitchen. We said, you know, just, you know, can imagine drama students going into a soup kitchen in the middle of a minor strike. Hello, everyone, we're here to entertain you with some radical interpretations of dance. Uh, looking back on it, it's slightly, you do cringe a little bit. But, uh, in fact, a group of us met up recently who were friends of mine who, who we used to do these shows. We used to put on sketch shows in labour clubs and, you know, in soup kitchens and what have you. And they were great fun to do. I'll tell you the thing about Soup Kitchen is you know when you're going down badly because the level of noise on the bowl just gets louder. <laughs> they don't boo you because, thanks very much, you've come along, that's lovely. Students are here. Oh, bloody hell, they've not come to show solidarity. I'm afraid they are. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Are they going to do us anything decent? Maybe some readings from Tennessee Williams? No, I think it's actually sketches. Oh, man. And they would sit there and they would just sort of, you know, the, the noise on the plate would just get louder if we were crap. And what kind of sketches would you do? We would do sketches about local bits and bobs that had happened during the strike or we'd do sketches about, you know, how the police were reacting in that area or what have you. So then when you started doing stand-up, which yeah. was, what, a few years after that? Uh, yeah, about 85, I think. How did you start? How did you... I did a gig in a pub in uh, Putney. And it was great. And at that time, what was really interesting was two things were interesting. One was the access to it. Anyone could phone up and just go, hi, I can do stand-up. And they go, oh, have you done it before? And you go, yes. And they go, okay, you get five minutes. And you could just get five minutes. Every club ran open spots. Everyone had five minutes, and you could try it. And if you were any good, then great, you got a booking. If you were crap, then, you know, maybe you should come back next time. And the other thing that was really interesting, you'd get all sorts of different people on it. So you'd get cabaret artists, you'd get low wire acts you'd get squeeze box acts you would get a performance artist you'd get old theatre people you'd get stand-ups you'd get a whole range of things that you didn't I used to love like used to get uh, amazing poets you know who really were just fantastic that still you know people like Attila the Stockbroker are still sort of out there doing it and John Hegley who's just you know wonderful but you'd also get performance artists and there was one guy who was brilliant and I loved what he did and he was called the Iceman and what he did was he'd try and melt a block of ice an enormous like it was this kind of great block of ice that he would put on a stand and for 20 minutes he would attempt to melt it and that was his act what with? Uh, oh he would use everything sometimes he would file sometimes he'd blow on it sometimes <laughs> he'd rub it and he'd use all these different methods and talk about them sometimes he'd bring out you know spray and uh, I thought it was hysterically funny it was brilliant and at the end he would always stand up and go block number 33 and he would number them block number 33 has defeated me and it was this wonderful sort of mixture of things that went on and so what was your material like when you started oh dreadful it was about the first thing that I wrote about was about because there were riots at the time how times change I wrote about riots breaking out in Knightsbridge and police officers being assaulted with Tatler 
That was quite bad. It was quite well, bad. Well, no, but then, yeah. but also it's interesting that it kind of was <laughs> so political from, from the get-go. Yeah, but then I discovered, actually, you could talk about anything you like, and so for a couple of years, uh, great, you could just... I uh, did a video called Sex, Filth and Religion, which was just about how far can you talk about these subjects? How far can you talk about it without kind of being just sort of like misogynistic, but actually trying to talk about sex and trying to talk about all the taboos that go along with it? <laughs> I bumped into a mate who had a phone call from a friend of his. <laughs> he had actually said, he said, I've just watched that thing that Mark did. And he was like, oh, my God. <laughs> there were some quite sort of rude things on it. Right. Nothing kind of like Frankie Boyle. Right. <laughs> but still not completely... No, it's about the biggest... There was a routine there which was about the biggest taboo being sex with your mother and how she would react. <laughs> and, um, and it was just about her sort of making sure you didn't have dandruff and, and sort of going, have you brushed your teeth? You know, and all that sort of... <laughs> when did you do that? <laughs> many, many years right. ago. Many, many years ago. Do you think it's important, if you have a voice that's being heard, do you think it's important to say important things with it, to try and influence things? The shows that I do now are great sort of rambling old two-hour-long affairs, which are about the adventures of it, and so you get to meet all the different characters and you get to meet all the different people involved in it. They're kind of entirely different from just doing a 20-minute get up there and go, dang, 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 dang. I did it recently. It was really exciting. Did I went, you? I went to do a gig at the Comedy Store where I used to compare at the comedy store. I went back and did a gig there for the Family Planning Association. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I will tell you the story anyway. What happened was that the Family Planning Association, I did it because abortion in Northern Ireland, um, they don't have the same rights as people here, which is nuts. So you've got people who are British who don't have the same rights. The 67 abortion that hasn't been introduced. And so I did the gig for the Family Planning Association, and they give you a goodie bag. And you can imagine the Family Planning Association goodie bag is lots of lubes and tubes and things and bits and pieces with wires and batteries. And anyway, this woman came up to me and said, have you got your goodie bag? I said, and it was great because I was able to go, oh, I think I'm a bit too old for that, love. But thank you very much. And she turned around and said the best line I've ever heard. She goes, what, not even a cock ring? <laughs> <laughs> and so what did you do for the material? I did loads of manifesto stuff. It was really interesting just to do 20 minutes. Manifesto, yeah. this is the show that you did last year this well year. The, the manifesto is a show which i've done um last year but it's also on radio right this and year. this is where you were getting people to make suggestions yeah people come up with ideas for policies and then we discuss them with the audience and vote on it and then we try and make some of the suggestions sort of work and i mean some of them are really exciting some of them are really you know you get the sublime and the ridiculous we had one the other day where this bloke just said uh, i picked up his suggestion he just said to clamp homelessness i said what what on earth are you doing? He said, well, they look untidy. I said, OK, well, let's assume for one minute that it's acceptable to think like that, that it's acceptable to go, homeless people look untidy, and that's the most important thing about them, not the fact that they're homeless, not the fact that in some way we need to sort of protect them or they're vulnerable or anything like that. Let's just assume they make a mess. And so you want to clamp them? He said, yes. And I said, that's going to leave them exactly in the same place. He said, oh, I haven't really thought this through, have I? So, you know, you get these kind of weird moments like that and then you get there's a very Radio 4 one. Oh man it's so funny I think I'm probably allowed to tell you this okay that one of the things that got voted through was that we should have <laughs> that unused or unclaimed fruit should be quote compulsorily surrendered for communal jam and chutney making <laughs> <laughs> That's very Radio 4. Which is very Radio 4. But they also voted through at the same time that whenever a Tory politician appeared on television, they should play the Jaws theme music 
which I thought was quite nice that they went for the two things. There was one, I remember in Bath picking up a policy and it just said, hang a banker. Hang, it said, hang a banker every day of the year. Like, not, you know, just, just a quick sort of hanging and get the lynch mob over and done with. But, like, let's have an organised campaign against bankers. I, I assume they meant, you know, investment bankers and all that. And then underneath he said, and compulsory allotments for everyone. And I just thought, that, that is fantastic, isn't it? What were the more serious ones? What was an example of a more serious one that went um, through? There were some, well, there were ones about the way in which voting is organised, which is really interesting. Renationalising the railways was one of them. There was all sorts of stuff about Trident. But you'd also get ones, there was a great one that someone put in that models should be chosen at random from the electoral register which I just thought was great. I loved that idea. I thought, what a wonderful way to challenge everyone's preconceptions of beauty and erotic and, and age and race and gender and all of those things. You can't have advertisers being this filter anymore and you can't have this market of disposable income and demographics and all that. You just go, you get a model. I like the idea that you just go... You couldn't say, I want a skinny woman with large breasts. You couldn't say that. You'd have to go, I need a model. And my idea was that actually we took this as an amendment that you would be informed that you were modelling by the same way you'd be informed of jury service. So you get a little note through the post. The whole thing was my dad would end up going, I'm doing Calvin Klein. You know, this <laughs> idea of my dad wandering around. And so what are you doing with these? What have you done with them? Well, we did a book, and then we also had a, a nice chap called Danny Kushlik, who worked for the charity Transform, which uh, campaigns to end prohibition on drugs. And he's a very, very serious-minded chap. And he lives in St Paul's in Bristol. Problem with a lot of drugs and a lot of the associated problems that go along with that. We helped fund his campaign. He stood on all the manifesto pledges. But one of them was to legalise all drugs. And that was very interesting because he went on all the hustings. You know, the vote was funny, you know, because you'd end up going to the vote. And, of course, you have to discuss all the ballot papers that might be spoiled. Right, so we're at the count with Danny, and you go over, the return officer goes, spoil ballot papers, and so you go over there. And there's one bloke, or somebody had, I don't know, bloke, somebody had drawn a perfect cock and balls, a, a bus shelter rendition, in the Lib Dem candidate's box. And he said, I'm counting this as a vote for the Lib Dems, <laughs> as there is no indication of other preference. And so, so that got counted for the Lib Dems. And I said to the Lib Dem one, hands down, I said, oh, you should have kept that one, mate. You've got loads of votes. Put that one in your bathroom. Yeah. <laughs> but he also has one ballot paper that had written a, a, a rude word, putting one letter in each of the boxes, uh, indicating that some a person might be a self-pleasuring type. And they'd put a letter in every box but ours. And I tried to argue with the returning officer, that was our vote. That was our vote. There's no box. There's no, you know, we aren't that person. Uh, but they weren't having that at all. So that was fun being there at the count. What was really interesting was Danny was able to go on. He's incredibly well-versed. This is what he does for a living. So he'd go into hustings in church halls and all this kind of stuff and would talk about legalising drugs and what that meant for the economy, what it meant for health, what it meant for how we might approach things. And actually, what was brilliant was the number of candidates who found agreement with him or would have to come round to his way of thinking in the husting because he was so brilliant at it. 
I could talk to you forever about this and there's about a squillion other things that you've done, but information about all of it and about the tour, which starts next year. And it's really long. It is quite a long tour, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but it's all up on your website, is. which is... MarkThomasInfo.com. Mark Thomas, thank you so much. That's a real pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes, Yes, marsha.com forward slash off the mic.